Thanks and welcome to this Buckhalter podcast. This is our fifth edition of the Trade Secret and Employee Mobility podcast. My name is Dylan Wiseman. I'm the co-chair of the firm's Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility practice group, and I've been practicing exclusively in this field for 23 years. Hi, I'm Lisa Poe Fuller, and I'm a commercial litigator in the Sacramento Buckhalter office, and part of my practice focuses on trade secrets and employee mobility. Hello, I am Jarrett Osborne-Revis. I'm also an associate in Buckhalter Sacramento office. I'm a commercial banking and bankruptcy lawyer, and I've also been incorporating trade secrets and mobility uh, litigation into my practice. Thanks again for joining us. This is episode six of the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility podcast. This is part two of our discussion about California's attorney's fees provisions for bad faith uh, prosecution of trade secrets claims. In the first episode on this, we talked about subjective bad faith and all the kind of criteria and indicators that suggest that a party is not pursuing their claims uh, for a proper purpose. And we walk through all the various um, all the various items based on our experience that we've seen that, that tend to suggest that. As I mentioned in the first episode, it's a two-part test. And the second uh, part of the test is whether or not the trade secret claim was objectively specious. And the courts have been able to identify what that means for us, basically saying that where the claim on, on its first appearance appears to have merit, because lawyers are really good about making stuff look good on paper. But when you get into the facts of it all and the meat and the substance of it all, it all kind of withers away and disappears. And so we have identified uh, several different characteristics, again, of uh, that indicate a claim is objectively specious. And so, Lisa, one of the first ones is that it relies upon illegal contract terms. So you can talk about that for us. Yeah, so in California, a lot of times a plaintiff will rely on illegal contract terms such as a covenant not to compete or something similar. And those type of provisions that don't fall within an exception, those type of provisions are not um, upheld in uh, California and they're not enforced. And so this seems to happen and arise a lot more with out-of-state attorneys where they don't realize that those are not permitted in California. I'm not sure they don't realize. I think they know. (laughs) They just don't care. Yeah, they just don't care, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's one factor that the court will look at. And uh, one of the things is, like, for example, some illegal um, contract terms. Uh, I've got a case now where we're dealing with an intellectual property assignment, and the law is that... if you have a contract in place and it says that you're an employee and whatever you develop or invent during the course of your employment relationship belongs to your employer, that's totally fine. But provisions that reach well beyond that and say, and we also own everything that you own a year after you leave your employment are unlawful because California, we have all these restraints on employee mobility. Uh, And other provisions that are unlawful like um, we now know f- for a relative certainty that employee non-solicitation provisions are void and unenforceable. So if I get a, a lawsuit that, that comes in and I'm supposed to be defending the, the, the founders and it's based on some illegal intellectual property assignment provision and an unlawful um, employee non-solicitation term, we have a pretty strong indication that you know this is objectively specious from the outset. Um, one of the other 
parts that we can tell kind of right out of the gate whether or not the claims are objectively specious is if the claims are necessarily preempted. So the way that the Trade Secrets Act works is it's the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, and it was enacted in 85, and the whole idea was to bring clarity to this area of the law so we don't have this patchwork of legal theories about trade secrets claims. You only have the one theory. It's the statute. That's it. So, but Jared, you and I have dealt with this trade secret preemption issue a lot because what we see is uh, lawyers try to uh, allege the trade secret violation in all sorts of various forms and fashions that are non-statutory. And Jarrett, you've, you've dealt with this issue, so why don't you discuss a bit for us about claims that you know are uh, obviously preempted. Exactly. So in this, that's a good case to bring to mind. In that particular case, the former employer sued the employee uh, under multiple different theories, and those liability theories um, were breach of contract claim, negligence claim, uh, all tied to an alleged trade secret misappropriation. The former employer didn't actually allege the UTSA claim, so the lawsuit itself uh, appeared to be objectively specious. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the way it works is if you've got claims that are basically redundant or have repackaged the trade secrets claim, uh, that's a strong indication that A, the lawyers don't know what they're doing, and B, the claims may be entirely objectively specious. So um, that's one of the good, strong indicators. Uh, one of the other things that we look at too is what are the damages that these folks have suffered and can they establish causation and damages? So, uh, Lisa, this is an issue that we recently prevailed on in summary judgment and got a client out uh, where the other side just could not establish that even if the trade secrets were misappropriated, which they weren't, uh, that there were any, uh, that that caused any of their injuries. Right. So courts will really look at, did the plaintiff have any type of damages or were their damages always questionable from the very onset? And a lot of times plaintiffs will bring these, these claims, but there's really no evidence of damages. They believe that possibly in discovery they might identify some damages. But in those cases, if they can't prove those damages and there's no causation, there's no um the damages from the very onset are very questionable, then courts are going to really look at that when they're deter determining whether the case was brought in bad faith. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, dealing with a matter in Southern California where the the judge asked opposing counsel in open court, what are your damages? And the lawyer said, well, it might be some five-figure number and it might be an eight-figure number. And, you know, from my vantage, that's a, a trademark indication that you got a bad faith problem at hand. If you uh, filed a lawsuit and you don't even know if this is a $25,000 or a $10 million case, uh, you got yourself a real problem. But um, which comes into, I think, very easily our next topic that we've seen that really tends to show that things are objectively specious, which is this kind of failure to investigate claims before the lawsuit is filed. I'd say that's that's a good segue, Dylan. And that's one of the major issues that creeps up. Employers are so fearful that employees will leave with protected trade secrets that they are quick to rush out and file a lawsuit seeking injunction against the employee from disclosing any confidential trade secrets to their current employer without doing any due diligence or investigation to see if trade secrets were even misappropriated. Uh, and when you act too quickly, uh, that's a strong indication that the lawsuit itself may be objectively specious. Yeah, so um, the we see a fair amount of this 
this is where computer forensics again comes up, is that the computer forensics is usually pretty telltale about what happened. There's not much uh, room there to kind of say, well, this happened this way or it didn't. I mean, the computer forensics is just like any other forensics. It, it is pretty well factually establishes what transpired. And it's kind of amazing to me that we deal with a fair number of cases where they say, well, my database was misappropriated or these files have gone missing out of our out of our database or this research file has gone missing. And the first issue is always for us is like, what forensics have you done? And the courts have um, came out. There's a really interesting decision between two biopharmaceutical companies about five years ago where the judge had had enough of the antics of one of them and said, look, you basically acted in this kind of willful blindness that you didn't do enough on the front end to determine if your claim, if your claim had traction. And then once you came to learn that it didn't, you kept pursuing it. And so this kind of failure to investigate is not just the failure on the front end. I think it's also, at least you can speak to this, it's kind of the failure to constantly uh, look at the, the value and the, and the merits of the claim to, to see if it does continue to hold up. Right. And so there is a duty to keep on investigating, make sure that the forensics really demonstrate that the departing employee or the departing CEO, that they actually misappropriated the trade secrets, that they actually took information and misappropriated as opposed to simply accessing files. Accessing is not enough. And California has really rejected the inevitable disclosure doctrine. So just the fact that an employee, let's say, accessed a file or that it went to a competitor and it's inevitable that it would uh, disclose that information at the competitor, that's not enough. But certain counsel will still rely on that theory. Um, more than mere suspicion is required and a due, due diligence throughout the, throughout the case is very important and the plaintiff's counsel always needs to ensure that they have the facts to support their claim and if they determine that there's not those facts then at that time they really need to deter make a decision about whether or not to proceed forward with the case. Yeah and one of the, the, the most prominent case that deals with um, trade secret misappropriation and objective speciousness is this FLIR systems case where there were lawyers that uh, I knew that were at one of the mega firms that was handling it at the time. And uh, they proceeded with their entire cases based on the inevitable disclosure doctrine, which is something that California courts had rejected years earlier. But they continued on and continued on. And the court ultimately uh, found that they had uh, pursued this startup competitor in a way that was totally inappropriate and awarded the the startup all of its attorney's fees in defending against the trade secrets action because they, they had basically been bullied by this mega firm for an extended period of time and the claims had, had were completely baseless. And so uh, the objective specious standard is uh, really important. So if, if the lawyer discovers that there are not facts to support the claim, the courts have basically said at that point they need to put down their sword and so and to stop continuing to prosecute. But I'll tell you, um, you know, that rarely happens. And we see lots of cases where we get out of the case on summary judgment uh, where we establish there just are not facts to support the claim. And then the next thing we do is that we move for our uh, bad faith attorney's fees. And so uh, that is one of the kind of checks and balances in this area that uh, enables uh, companies to 
to cash in on the fact that, look, in California, you're free to leave to go to competitors as long as you do it in a fair and lawful way. And if you do and you still get chased around and beat up by your uh, former employer, uh, you have a possibility to recover your attorney's fees if they proceed in bad faith. And with that, I would invite everyone to subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This has been the sixth episode of the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employability Podcast. I want to thank Lisa Polfuller and Jarrett Osborne-Ravis for joining me today. And I look forward to continuing on to do some more of these podcasts with you guys down the road.